0: You're listening to The Way Home with Daniel Darling, a proud member of the Venom Audio Network. Welcome back to The Way Home Podcast. This is Dan Darling. I am so glad to be with you today. Uh, it is good to be back behind the microphone after a bit of a break with the podcast. We are excited about the next several series of episodes. We got some great guests lined up and all of them are timed uh, to the release of my brand new book. It's called Away With Words, using our online conversations for good that releases with B&H August 18th. You can pre-order it now if you go to awaywithwordsbook.com or go to your favorite retailer. And if you pre-order, You can get some special bonuses from my website. You could just upload the receipt there and download some free bonuses, including a special social media survival guide that I would love for you to have. My first guest is one of the most renowned Bible scholars in the world and perhaps the most important New Testament scholar in the last several hundred years. He has written perhaps the most important book on the resurrection in the maybe half a century. It's called The Resurrection of the Son of God, where it's just an inexhaustible set of proofs, really proving that Jesus Christ did rise from the dead as Christians believe. He is a New Testament scholar. He was the Bishop of Durham from 2003 to 2010. You may know him for his book on the end of times called Surprised by Hope, a really good book, one that I have read that's really shaped the way I think about eschatology. Well, I wanted to have N.T. right on for a number of reasons to talk about maybe our misconceptions about the world of the New Testament and some common mistakes we read when reading the New Testament, reading the Bible. But more importantly, to ask him, how should Christians process this past year with the pandemic, with the racial unrest? He has a new book called God in the Pandemic. A lot of Christians are wondering, do we blame certain things and this is God's judgment? Is this signal that this is the end of days? He joins me and really answers some really important questions that Christians are asking. I think you're going to really enjoy this conversation with Bible scholar and author N.T. Wright. Well, it's my honor to have here on the Way Home podcast, someone whose work I've I've read for a long time and have admired, Dr. N.T. Wright, who is University of St. Andrews in Scotland, among other things, chair of New Testament, Early Christianity, author of several books. Thank you for joining me today. I appreciate it. Thank you. Good to be with you. So so there's a range of things I want to talk to you about. First, I think the most present one is we're in the midst of really a tumultuous year 2020, uh, to say the least, with the coronavirus and then uh, now obviously the protests and, and unrest around racial justice and racial reconciliation. I guess my first question is, as you look back on your years in ministry and work, how does this year compare to other years of tumult that you've been through? Is it Somewhat unprecedented. Is it? Is there a category that you would fit it into a, another period in history?
1: Uh, it's unprecedented in my lifetime to have a situation where, for instance, the churches have been locked for two months and worship has taken place online. Actually, thank God we've got computers and can do Zoom and Teams and things. Because um, if this had happened fifty years ago, uh, there wouldn't have been the facility to have even the rather odd electronic church services that we've been ha- having. But um, in terms of going back further than that, I think the way it has been for many people has been, in a way, quite like it was during the war. You know, during the war in Britain, because of bombing raids and so on, everyone had to have blackout curtains and there were no streetlights and, and you had to sort of creep around. And there was always a sense, um, even though bits of normal life were able to go ahead, that you never knew what was coming next. And how things were. And everyone was watching the news and waiting for um, the the, the next word. And I suppose it's been a bit like that, though obviously different because of the different dynamics. We're fighting a disease, not a a national enemy. Um, uh, The other things, I I was thinking about this, the great crises that have happened in the last 20 years. 9-11 sent a panic across the whole world. Everyone Mm -hmm. stopped flying for a week and, and all the rest of it. And then all the new security systems that came in. And then the financial crash of 2008, that sent panic around the world and all sorts of things were going on then. And, and you know, the Western world didn't react very well to either of those. And I would love to think that we can react a bit better this time around. Um, I'm not holding out too much hope that we will, but there is always a chance.
0: Yeah. It, it does seem out of some of those times in history, some of our best thinkers and writers have emerged. So if you think of the the time you you talked about with World War II that you know C.S. Lewis kind of emerged during that time with some of his mm-hmm. work. Mm-hmm and so do you think a similar thing could happen uh, out of this time it it could
1: yes and there's somebody wrote a book just recently pointing out from 1943 the different people who were at work on various projects and lewis is there and ts Eliot is there writing the four quartets and simone veil and people like that um and and the sort of great crisis forces people to dig deeper and and maybe that's happening i don't know we probably won't know for six months or a year or whatever it wouldn't surprise me if there are new voices, if there are poets or maybe musicians or artists or theologians or philosophers, or please God, some political leaders, couldn't we do it with you <laughs> right now, um, who will say, hang on, we're just getting this wrong. Let's think straight about this and let's do this and this and this. And I think if such people emerge and seem to be wise and seasoned and so on, I said to somebody at the beginning of it, what we need is rather like Towards the end of the book of Genesis, when Joseph is the one who interprets Pharaoh's dreams and says, there's a crisis coming and here's how you're going to have to deal with it. And Pharaoh says, well, you seem to know what you're doing. We better put you in charge of it. And so, you know, I've said to various people, we need to be praying for a Joseph
0: or a Mm. set of Josephs at the moment that's a great word yeah it does seem like leadership is lacking at all levels around the world i want to talk about the coronavirus about the the pandemic Mm -hmm. you you've written a book god Mm -hmm. in the pandemic and it's been very helpful for a lot of people you know christians right now have a lot of questions about what is going on and and so you know ranging from a variety of perspectives is is this god's judgment Mm -hmm. on the world for a specific Mm -hmm. set of sins or is this god calling the world to repentance At a basic level, how should Christians be thinking about this this time, number one? And number two, you know, if you're talking to pastors and church leaders as they're trying to shepherd their people through these times, how, how are you trying to tell us how to think about these things? Yeah,
1: I think there is an appropriate humility about how we approach these things. This has crashed upon our heads. And what we don't need is people saying at once, oh, this is all right. I know what this is about. It's God telling us this and this and this you know, that's just too glib. And it implies that God is almost like a machine who something's gone wrong here, or we can trace it back. And it's because God pressed that button there. And so we can see what he was all about. And then I read the book of Job and I read Psalm 44, and I read all sorts of bits of scripture. Um, and, And I read John 9 and Jesus saying, it isn't because somebody sinned. It's because God is doing a new thing. I say, okay, bring it on let's pray for god's new thing to emerge but let's not assume that we know ahead of time what that is Um, and so of course there are many things that happen which are a sign that uh, god is allowing wickedness to bring its own reward stuff happens where you can trace it back and say well if that was going to be the case then you should have expected something like that would occur but this is much much bigger than that You know, Somebody said to me early on in this, oh, isn't this obvious what's going on? We've been praying for years that God would do something about the ecological crisis, about our polluting the planet. Well, look around you now. The skies are clear. There aren't any cars on the roads. um, The water is clean in the streams and, and the sea and so on. So this is obviously God's... And I said, so hang on. You're saying that the creator of the universe is quite happy to kill tens, hundreds of thousands of human beings around the world in order that this, yes, desirable result could come. What are we just saying there? Mm. Um, maybe God can bring good out of evil, but watch out in case you say that the evil is itself good, because believe me, it ain't. That's a
0: great word. And, and it, it makes me think about some of the work you have done. My guess is, you know, people know you as a New Testament scholar, but perhaps mm. of all your work, they most know you for your work on the resurrection and oh. on the future kingdom. And uh, I'm thinking of your book, Surprised by Hope, which I yes, think yes. has really... Well, you know, probably my f- best-known book, certainly in America. You know, for me personally, it was just a wonderful theology of what awaits us in the fully consummated kingdom of God. Right, um, right. That's great. But there's an, there's an aspect of, of resurrection theology, it would seem, that can guide us through something like this, that, that when we see the world is not as it should be, does it not mm-hmm. yet create this longing for the world that's to come?
1: Yes. Yes, of course. And, and that's right and proper. And that's why I go back again and again to First Corinthians 15, where eventually we're promised uh, God through Christ will defeat all enemies, the last one being death itself, mm. and that God will be all in all. And I have a friend who describes herself as a panentheist. And, and I, what I tend to say is that that gets it the wrong way around. God will be all in all. Panentheism is wrong. That implies everything's just in God. And if everything's in God already, you can't really have a critique of evil. You can't say that this is wrong, because as with stoicism, everything is what it is. You can't say that anything's wrong. Rather, if we say there will be a time when God will be all in all, God will defeat death itself, so that then the earth shall be full of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's what we're looking forward to. And the other passage, of course, in the New Testament, other than Revelation 21, is Romans 8, which I talk about more in the book. Um, the idea of the new creation being born laboriously and painfully from the womb of the old. Mm. And what, we're, what we've been going through is, is a bit of that labor pain.
0: Mm. And it seems like good eschatology both gives us uh, a framework for lamenting the brokenness of the world, but also Mm -hmm. hope into the world to come. Can you talk about how Christians in a time like this can, can do both? Cause I, I feel like sometimes we either dwell in one or the other, right? We, we race ahead to our hope and forget that we should lament the death and brokenness. So how how do we do that well? Yes,
1: yes. I would would start off with, with the Psalms, and I would also start off simultaneously with Romans 8, because Romans 8 is often read as just a glorious chapter of hope, and people skip over those three little verses in the middle, 26, 27, and then they misread 28 as well, because at the heart of the hope of the glory that is to come is this strange passage where creation is groaning in travail, that we are groaning within that, and the Spirit is groaning within us. Mm -hmm. Now, the Pentecostal movements have stressed so much that when the Spirit comes, this brings joy and gladness and a new sense of life, and that's true as well. And somehow, when the Spirit comes, the Spirit magnifies everything else that ought to be going on. So joy and lament ought to be two sides of the same coin. Mm. And, you know, the the old philosophers, I can't now remember, oh, I should know this, what their names were, but one of them notoriously came out of his front door every morning and burst out laughing because everything was so funny. The other one came out of his front door and burst into tears because everything was so tragic. It's a way of saying both of those are true. Mm. And, And the danger in the church actually Uh, one of the church leaders in England said this to me a week or two ago. He said, Tom, you know, we don't do lament very well. He said, but Mm. we don't actually do celebration very well either. What we mostly do is complacency. And I thought, yeah, he's Mm. absolutely right. We just trundle along and we try to avoid those extremes. But in the Jewish world, they did lament all right. And there are many cultures, non-Western cultures, where they know how to lament uh, when somebody dies or when something terrible happens, then people get together and they weep and they mourn and they're with each other and and they, they let it take its course, like a sickness that has to be worked through the system. And mm-hmm. we don't like that. That's painful. It's like being sick to your stomach about something. You know, please, let's not do that. But spiritually, that's what we sometimes have to do. And I think this is one of those times right now. And if we, I was talking to somebody the other day, and if we feel in our own personal lives, there's a real sorrow, which is sort of in tune with that sorrow, then let that come out. Talk to a counselor, a, a priest, a, uh, somebody, and and enable it to come out so that your lament may join with the global lament, and so that the spirit may be lamenting in you. And when that happens, new things can emerge from that, rather than us rushing and saying, we know what God ought to be, ought to be going on to do, so please, let's have him hurry up and do it quickly, so that we don't have to bother about this painful lament. And the answer is, no, you do have to bother about
0: it. Mm. That's a great, that's such a great word, and it's hard to you know define that that center yeah. that you're talking about do we see that in jesus i'm thinking of john 11 where jesus yeah. Yeah. is both angry and weeping over lazarus the death of yeah. lazarus yeah. at the work of the enemy but then he's yeah. also giving martha this resurrection hope right do, yes yes do we see That's him right. embody
1: this it's it's fascinating and in god and the pandemic um i i, I refer to uh, a new book by the great japanese artist mako fujimura um, mm-hmm. who some of you and your listeners may know. Mako has uh, a book on a theology of making, which is just out with Yale Press. And I wrote a forward to it, so I know wh- what's in it. And Mako goes to John 11 and the raising of Lazarus. And he does an amazing job of drawing out the the, the beauty and the, and the sorrow of that amazing story. And what strikes me is this. You know, some older theologians used to say that well jesus was fully divine so he did miracles and got raised from the dead and so on and he was fully human so he wept and he was hungry sometimes and he died on the cross And i want to say absolutely not that is not what john's gospel is all about john's gospel says the word became flesh and tabernacled in our midst and you have to read the story of the human jesus including his suffering, his hunger, his tears, and his death, as Mm. this is what it looks like when the living God becomes human. And if that stretches your categories of the meaning of the word God, good. That's what John means us to hear. So otherwise, we, we, we look at the tears of Jesus and we think, well, maybe that was his human self, but his divine self wasn't crying because we know that God wouldn't cry. Well, excuse me, just read the prophets and you'll see God mourning God, grieving God, being passionate, God being compassionate, that this is the great Israel prophetic heritage coming into the flesh of one person. And with that, we find out of those tears, out of that sorrow, something new happens. And it seems to me we should be
0: inhabiting stories like that right now. One of the other books that that has come out recently from you and with Australian theologian Michael Bird, oh yeah, yeah. is uh, uh, the New Testament in Its World, which I have a copy of, and it's a great oh, resource. I'm I'm working on a project mm-hmm. right now for Easter mm-hmm. for next year, right? And I find it so helpful. If I was to ask you, when Christians read the New Testament, what are two or three of the common misconceptions they might have about the world in which the New Testament was written?
1: Oh, my goodness. How long have we got? Um,
0: <laughs>
1: I think the most common one is the meaning of the phrase kingdom of God. Mm. And people get into a fuss about this for the wrong reasons. They say kingdom. Oh, that's, that's a, a male word, king. Uh, so let's talk about sovereignty. And then they say that's an imperial word uh, or a colonial word, the idea of a sovereign who issues orders. I say, just get used to it. This is a biblical term, going back to Daniel 7, going back to Isaiah 52, and in Jesus' world, there were two of the biggest thugs of kings around at the time, um, Caesar and Herod, and Jesus still went on talking about the kingdom of God, even though the kings that they had were a very dangerous and unpleasant lot, because Jesus is retrieving the idea of God becoming king, and when God is king, then it looks like Jesus, Jesus going and touching a leper, Jesus allowing a sick woman to come close to him, even though that might have polluted him, and he cures her, Jesus feasting with tax collectors and sinners, Jesus weeping in Gethsemane and at the tomb of Lazarus. This is what it looks like when God becomes king. It is a compassionate, caring, redemptive kingship. So Those misunderstandings are common. But then the other ones are either that people say kingdom of God means heaven, kingdom of heaven, going to heaven when I die. So Jesus says, inherit the kingdom of God. That means going to heaven. Really, it doesn't. It means, as Jesus taught us to pray, that God's kingdom will come on earth as in heaven. That's a major shift. And when people get that right, they then tend to think, as St. Peter did in the gospel story, that, oh, well, if we're going to have an earthly kingdom, we better have a few swords and be ready to use them when necessary. And so people have claimed the kingdom of God in terms of violent revolution. And Those two misconceptions have fed off one another, the violent revolution on the one hand and the going to heaven on the other. And in the middle, you have the Sermon on the Mount, which is, this is what it looks like when God becomes king the meek and the mourners and the pure in heart and the justice bringers and the the peacemakers. Mm. They are the ones through whom God's sovereignty will be exercised because the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as ransom for many. So the kingdom of God is probably the biggest one that there is. But then out beyond that again, the idea that Jesus was fully divine and fully human, people have, Bothered their heads about that inevitably, and and in a sense, rightly. But we've forgotten that the great symbol in the Jewish world of the day of God and humans coming together was the temple in Jerusalem, which is where heaven came on earth. There's a little spot on earth which was where heaven was. Uh, Not the whole heaven, but God graciously coming to dwell there as an act of grace. And what we see in the New Testament is that that is the matrix for thinking about how one person can be both in our language fully divine and fully human because that's the language john uses jesus uh, speaks of the temple of his body and all through john's gospel but it's there in the others as well we see the temple theme illuminating who jesus actually is it makes sense to think of the living god coming to dwell with us in the person of uh, an image-bearing human being so those are two that's probably enough i mean mm-hmm. I, could, I could go on but, but that, that's a start
0: yeah that's that's fantastic and that's kind of a sample of, of i think what people will get if they read your work particularly your, your work on, on the new testament and so i encourage people to get the new testament and its world uh, surprised by hope and then uh, yeah, yeah. god in the pandemic which is really yeah. helpful could i just drop in one other thing there absolutely the, the gifford lectures which i did two years
1: ago uh, history and eschatology, that contains a much fuller, bigger, in some ways more academic, but hopefully still readable account of all of this larger worldview. Mm,
0: absolutely. Uh, and we'll put links to all that in the show <laughs> notes. You. I want to ask you, uh, be- before we close, you know, personally, what has this time been like for you in terms of, you know, we're all, we've all been closed up yeah, for yeah. several months, isolated. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I know you're also a musician. Well, you like to play sort the guitar of, sort of. yes i do so I, yeah. <laughs> have there been some things that have been uh helpful to you or, or what has this time no. been for you it's been very odd my wife and i just
1: moved back to oxford where we lived many years ago and we're living right in the middle of town normally at this time of the year oxford would be absolutely stuffed full of students and tourists and they aren't there and it's like a ghost town Uh, I've been cycling around because I'm allowed to cycle because you don't come too close to people And, and cycling through streets that would normally be full and bustling and there's nobody there and you just see these great old buildings. And it's very strange. But you see, I normally work from home anyway I've for years. I mean, this is my study at home where I am now. And for years, I prefer to work at my own desk with my own books or my own cup of coffee, whatever. So from that point of view, it's it's no change. The big problem is that I, I live a few hundred yards from the Bodleian Library, one of the great classical libraries of the Western mm. world. And it's locked, it's shut, I can't get in. Mm. So I'm reliant on my own resources, which fortunately I've got a few things. But in terms of meeting the Family, that's been really difficult. Our youngest son and his family live just a few miles up the road. And on birthdays, they have come and parked the car the other side of the street, opened the windows, and we have sung a happy birthday to them across the street. And yes, <laughs> I, I got out my trombone and stood in the front door and played happy birthday across the street <laughs> to my granddaughter and then a few weeks later, my grandson. Uh, which was funny because on the second occasion, we got some neighbors just four doors up the street and they heard this and looked out because one of their children, it was a birthday as well. So we all had a good laugh about that. So, you know, there have been some light moments, some good moments, but at the same time, particularly the sense of alienation from church buildings and of having to worship online when worship is Almost by definition, something we do together, Paul says, that you may with one heart and voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus. And yeah, we can do that on Zoom, we can do it on Teams, but it certainly isn't the same.
0: Do you think this will create a a renewed hunger for the embodied worship, the gathered worship of the people of God, number one? And number two, do you think it will create a a renewed appreciation for place and physical buildings and the importance of those things in our lives? Uh, I would love to think so, actually.
1: And it'll be interesting to see. Uh, I do have quite a a thought through theology of sacred space, because I know some people are worried about that. They think of sacred space as idolatrous, that how can you worship Mm. this building? We're not worshiping this building. And yes, you can worship God anywhere, but God, this is the the difference between a rapture theology that says the earth is just gonna be burned up and we're off somewhere else, or a theology which is about God renewing heaven Mm. and earth, summing it all up in Christ. A Mm. church building is meant to be an advance sign of that eventual renewal of all things. Now, like all advanced signs, it can go bad on you. It can, it can crack and point in the wrong direction if you're not careful, and be self-serving. And I know that, I've worked in some of the great cathedrals and so on, and they can become very dark places. But at its best, there is a sense that when you are here, you are, as T.S. Eliot said, in a place where prayer has been valid. And that there's a strange concept, mm. But, but almost as though some places have been prayed in so much that you come in and the building itself mm. says to you, it's okay to pray here.
0: Mm.
1: And, and that's a strange feeling. I don't, have, uh, I don't have it all mapped out. But I think people have been really, really missing that. And we just got word from our government a few days ago that the churches are about to be allowed to open for private prayer, not yet for public worship, but for private prayer. That's a start. And as soon as my my local church is unlocked, I'm going to be in there thanking God for at least some respite from this alienation we've had.
0: That's a good word and a good way to end. I want to encourage folks to, to uh, read, if you haven't already, uh, Dr. N.T. Wright, his work, God in the Pandemic, and the New Testament in its World, and many other books. We'll have links to those. Dr. Uh, N.T. Wright, thank you for joining me today. Thank you very much indeed. Good to be with you. Thank you for listening to this edition of the way home podcast with Daniel Darling. For more information, you can visit danieldarling.com. If you do like this podcast, we encourage you to subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast catcher. We also encourage you to rate and review so others can know about the podcast. You can follow me at, at Dan Darling on Twitter go to my facebook page facebook.com slash daniel m darling i also want to encourage you again to check out my latest book away with words and you can visit awaywithwordsbook.com and find out special pre-order bonuses if you order by august 18th thank you for listening again to the way home podcast this is a production of the national religious broadcasters